Welcome to the Calvary Church Podcast. We're glad that you are here and that you can be a part of a recent service at TCC. So let's join the service, which is already underway, and listen to the message. I want to quickly mention, because I did not feel like I had the time last week, the two books that um, we are using as our resources for this series we're doing on Jesus and the Biblical Feasts. Um, This first one, Celebrating Jesus in the Biblical Feast by Dr. Richard Booker. I thank Robin Meadows for bringing this wonderful study into my life. It was a huge blessing to me now, and I believe is helping us in this series. And then this is brand new to me, but I am a big fan. This is an eight-week Bible study called Seven Feasts, Finding Christ in the Sacred Celebrations of the Old Testament. And so it's set up like a workbook. You can do it by yourself. You can do it with a friend maybe, who wants to know Jesus better. Um, Or, you know, it's just an incredible resource of information, great questions and points of application. And it's by Aaron Davis. And so I just encourage you, if... If you're intrigued or you feel like, man, I'd I'd like to read more, uh, because again, this is just an overview, by no means going as in-depth as as one could in an amazing study like this. And so last week, we began this study that is all about Jesus. And part of our premise for this story, or for this series rather, is acknowledging that in the Gospel of John, which we're going to look at that book again tonight, John had a very unique approach in how he told the story of Jesus's life and ministry. It seems that the structure of John's gospel was was centered on two things, one being seven signs or seven miracles that Jesus performed, certainly not all of them, but seven that John chose with great purpose. And then what we are discussing, John records Jesus's attendance and involvement, his connection to these seven Jewish feasts that are mentioned in the Old Testament. And one thing that we highlighted in another series we did with the Gospels is that John's Gospels Uh, communication to us is very clear. That closeness to God is not dependent on proximity alone. That you can know about Jesus. You can be in the crowd and receive the miracle, but to know him, you can't just be around him, but you have to know who he is. And John wanted us to know you can know who Jesus really is just like I did. And so this study, I believe, reiterates to us in a very specific way that we were made to be in relationship with God. He is not meant to be a divine mystery to us. Sure, he isn't like us. Sure, we can't understand all of his ways or why he does some of the things that he does. But we can know who Jesus is for ourselves. In the Bible, we see that in the New Testament and in the Old Testaments, God used very vivid, very uh, specific imagery, word pictures, prophecies. Jesus taught in parables. God spoke in these ways for the purpose of helping his people know him 
and understand what he wanted for their lives. And so we're going to be honest, though, to admit in this series that sometimes the imagery in Scripture does not resonate with us as people of the Western world, as people of the modern world. I think it's important that we acknowledge that, that we don't always understand the King James Version of the Bible. I know that some are hopelessly devoted to it, and that is wonderful if you understand it for all that it is. But whatever your translation preference is, I implore all of us to have a study Bible, to have a parallel Bible where maybe KJV's on the left side and a version that you actually know what the words mean are on the other side. That these kind of tools help us understand the word of God better. Why is that so important? So that we can apply it correctly in our lives. So that we can help others apply it and understand it correctly in their lives. So let's go again to the feast. Last week... We gave an overview, we tried to create a foundation for us of three seasons, three feast seasons uh, recorded in the Old Testament, and these were observed according to the Jewish calendar, and so we just kind of mentioned that, that the Jewish calendar and even their clock are very different from ours, but these seasons that the Jews observed and built their calendar around represented three major encounters with God. They had a divine purpose in God's plan for his people. They provided peace, they provided power, and they provided God's rest in their lives. And within these three seasons, though, are the seven feasts that we're going through right now. Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles. These seven feasts represent seven steps toward God that we must take as believers. These times of religious gathering for God's people, the details of these gatherings that we see told to us in Scripture are all illustrations of who Jesus is and what he wants to do for anybody who will allow him. And so last week we began with the first Feast on the Jewish calendar, the one we probably have heard the most about, the Feast of the Passover. The Passover was the first encounter, we said, with uh, God that the Jewish people had as a nation. It was a celebration, a memorial to remember the Hebrews' deliverance from Egypt. And so this first season that we're in right now, it's very important for us to go to the next one with this in mind, was created to help the people of God experience God's peace in their lives. I would like more of God's peace in my life. Amen. And so we understand, because we looked last week very specifically, that the blood was not just to be put on the doorposts um, as they observed the Passover to keep the death angel out. It wasn't just about avoiding the 10th plague, but we understand what they were saying was, God, pass over our doorstep and come be a part of our lives. And God saw this as an important first step for them to leave slavery, 
to leave bondage, they had to give God permission to serve as their protection, to serve as the head of their homes and their families. And so this was an essential first step. So this week we're going to look at this second step for them to come out of Egypt. Leviticus chapter 23 again. And I'm going to mix it up for you this week. I'm going to use the New Living Translation, okay? So don't freak out. Don't freak out. I just decided that some of these words uh, we just kind of disconnect from. And so I liked the words that this translation uses to help us really wrap our brains around what is happening here. So the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. Remember uh, last week we talked about how that word for assembly actually means a dress rehearsal. Much more. See how understanding what the word actually means sheds a whole new uh, level of understanding. That it wasn't just gather together and have church again, blah, blah, blah. No, this was very purposeful. There was something they were practicing in anticipation of. And so verse 5, the Lord's Passover begins at sundown on the 14th day of the first month. On the next day, so that's where we are now, the next day. The 15th day of the month, you must begin celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This festival to the Lord continues for seven days. And during that time, the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? On the first day of the festival, all the people must stop their ordinary work. It's a holiday, people. You can't work and observe an official day for Holy Assembly for seven days. You must present special gifts to the Lord. On the seventh day, the people must again stop all their ordinary work to observe an official day for Holy Assembly. Now, let's make some notes about what we just read. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be observed the day after Passover. So back-to-back holidays, guys. This is very exciting. The 15th day of the first month on the Jewish calendar. Again, the 15th day. Look at somebody and say, this is very important. Very important. The feast lasted, as we just read, from day 15 to day 21. A party, seven days long. Those first and last days of the feast were high Sabbath days. Days, meaning very special days where they could not work for the purpose of spending time with God and thinking about, talking about as families what God had done for them. And so as we saw last week, the details of this feast are directly connected to the exodus from Egypt. The way they were to celebrate was intended by God to make them remember what he had done for them. And not just make them remember, but make them tell their children what God had done for them. Exodus chapter 13. So Moses said to the people, this is a day to remember forever the day you left Egypt, the place of your slavery. Today the Lord has brought you out by the power of his mighty hand. Remember, eat no food containing yeast. For seven days the bread you eat must be made without yeast. Then on the seventh day, celebrate a feast to the Lord. Eat bread without yeast during those seven days. In fact, there must be no yeast bread or any yeast at all 
found within the borders of your land during this time. Isn't this so interesting? The specifics of what God is telling them to do. And so let's look. I've got a slide for you to hopefully make this uh, very simple for you to kind of wrap your imagination around. Instructions for the Feast of Unleavened Bread as God told his people through Moses. There was a high Sabbath that began the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The first one was on the 15th day of the first month of their year. No work, people. You spend time with God and with each other. The second thing we realize is that no bread was to be eaten with leaven in it. Not very tasty bread consumed during this festival. You see, when God brought them out of Egypt, they did not have time to bake bread and get ready for the journey. Okay? And so this was to remind them. Of that fact. Because bread usually included leaven. And it was a key part of the baking process. Now, I am not a bread maker. Do we have bread makers in here? Hmm? Ma'am, you're a bread maker, aren't you? You should come up here and explain this, right? No, I'm kidding. But I'm not a bread maker. I'm a Klosterman, Pillsbury, Texas Toast kind of gal. And so these books kind of help me wrap my head around what is all this importance and symbolism wrapped up in the leaven. But let me add some culinary insight or remind you of things you know about bread as it pertains to what we're talking about. That leaven is used to make bread rise. Okay. It creates tiny air bubbles in the dough that cause the bread to rise while it's baking in your oven. And so here's what's especially interesting for us to understand is that once you put the leaven in, you cannot get it back out. There's no, I'm sure you have recipes where maybe you stop and taste and you're like, whoa, too much of this, so we'll add this and kind of balance it out. That is not an option when it comes to leaven. With leaven, it's a done deal. Once it's in, it's in, and it permeates the whole loaf. That's the whole purpose, but more on that later. And so over time, leaven became a symbol of their time in Egypt. Leaven for the Hebrews came to symbolize the bondage that they had lived under for generations Unleavened bread essentially symbolized the fact that the Hebrews had walked away from that life of bondage by God's powerful hand. It reminded them that they were no longer slaves because God had delivered them. You see, Egyptian life and culture went against the teachings of God. The Hebrew children did not belong in Egypt and they knew it and they were mistreated by the Egyptians. And so before the festival could be celebrated, all of the leaven had to be removed from their homes. This required spring cleaning by these families in ways that you and I have probably never even thought of. Bread was a basic part of their diet. And so essentially leaven could be anywhere and everywhere. And so they not only cleaned their house top to bottom, swept and scrubbed everything they could, but anything that was used to make the bread, the utensils, the cookware, if it came in contact with the leaven specifically, it had to be boiled. 
It was that important to get the leaven out of the house. And so as the tradition evolved and was passed down to generations, the cleaning would be completed. And in the evening, the head of house would lead a game of sorts for the family called the search for the leaven. And you can actually look up. I found a really cool video of a a modern Jewish family doing this with their little two-year-old boy. He had a little candle And they were going through the house looking for the leaven. The whole purpose is teaching this little boy of theirs, reminding him of what God had done for his people. And so all of the family, Moses said, is to participate in this process. On the seventh day, we're back in Exodus 13, you must explain to your children, I am celebrating what the Lord did for me when I left Egypt. This annual festival will be a visible sign to you, like a mark branded on your hand or your forehead. Let it remind you always to recite this teaching of the Lord with a strong hand. The Lord rescued you from Egypt. So observe the decree of this festival at the appointed time each year. And so if you're like me, the specifics of this feast are especially intriguing. And so now let us look to the New Testament to see what Jesus is recorded doing during the festival of unleavened bread. Our good friend John the Beloved records two events in Jesus's life that take place around the time of this feast of unleavened bread. Remember we said last week that every major event in Jesus's life took place on a feast day. All right, so the first time, John tells us, is in John chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. This is a passage of scripture that you're very familiar with, but I want you to have this feast in your mind as we read it. Okay, after this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? He was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. Jesus is cool like that. Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. But what good is that with this huge crowd? Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. And so they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Now we're going to drop down to verse 32. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven. Jesus is pointing them back to Exodus, right? My father did, and now he offers you the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, give us that bread every day. Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry again. Whoever believes in me 
will never be thirsty. And down to 47, I tell you the truth. Anyone who believes has eternal life. Yes, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, but they all died. Anyone who eats the bread from heaven, however, will never die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread will live forever. And this bread, which I will offer, so the world may live, is my flesh. Now, knowing what we know about what the Jews are about to celebrate and think about as a nation, Jesus is saying, it's me. I'm the unleavened bread. And so let's look at Jesus quickly and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Just some specifics that the Bible gives us to make sure we're making these connections. That it's during the same week of this feast that Jesus identifies himself as the bread of life. Is that a coincidence? Absolutely not. No way. In fact, at the time of this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 Jews had already gathered in Jerusalem in anticipation of the Feast of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In fact, it's not a stretch to assume that probably some of the people who sat on the hillside that day had come into the area for the purpose of celebrating these festivals. And they had been following Jesus so long that they had become very hungry. The second thing is that Jesus used this miracle of the loaves and fishes. Remember, it's much more than 5,000 people. That's just the men that were present. So there were women and children in addition to that number. He uses this miracle of feeding so many people to teach them that he was the bread of life. That even though they were satisfied by that bread temporarily, Jesus said, I am able to satisfy you forever. Amen. And despite their response to his claim that he was the Messiah, because that's what he was saying, what we just read. Jesus was identifying himself as the Messiah. Jesus went on in John chapter 6 to introduce the idea of the Lord's Supper. And this is probably the biggest one in my opinion. It was on the 15th day of the month. That Jesus was buried in a tomb after he died on the cross. Jesus was put into the tomb the day the feast of unleavened bread began. Coincidence? No way. Let's read in John 19. It was the day of preparation. What were they preparing for? The Passover. The feast of Passover and unleavened bread. And the Jewish leaders didn't want the bodies hanging there in the next day, which was the Sabbath. And a very special Sabbath because it was Passover week. Following Jewish burial custom, they wrapped Jesus' body with the spices and long sheets of linen cloth. The place of crucifixion was near a garden where there was a new tomb never used before. And so... Because it was the day of preparation for the Jewish Passover, and since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. It's so powerful to fully comprehend why John is spending so much time 
giving us the details of the time of day and the day of the week that Jesus was taken down from the cross. We understand John was not just sharing random details with us. I'm here to tell you there are no random details in this book. All of it points to Jesus and all of it is meant to help you understand what he wants for your life. So by explaining all of this to us, when Jesus' body was taken down, the details of his burial, and the fact that the traditional embalming process was not allowed to be done on that high Sabbath day was all told to us for the sole purpose of directing us to this profound revelation that Jesus became sin for us. He was without sin. That's why he could do it. There was no leaven in him. He was the unleavened bread. He was the bread of life. And so by becoming what the leaven had symbolized, Jesus became that bread from heaven that he had just told the crowd about in John chapter 6. The Jews had been for 1,500 years carefully removing leaven from their homes as families, telling their children that God brought us out with a mighty hand out of bondage out of slavery, out of sin. And here Jesus is on the day of that feast as the bread of life, the unleavened bread in the flesh. How do we know this for sure? Since Hebrew time is different than ours, the Bible lets us know that it was six o'clock in the evening when they allowed them to remove Jesus' body and was committed to the care of Joseph of Arimathea. And so this lets us know, because the Hebrew day begins in the evening, remember, that it was the 15th day. This was part of God's plan to communicate clearly what had been accomplished through Calvary. It was not intended to be a mystery. He didn't want them to miss it. He doesn't want us to miss it. When Jesus gave himself for our sins, he had now removed the sin. He had removed the leaven from our lives and from our homes. It's influence because leaven has a very influential property, doesn't it? It permeates that dough and it's a representation of what sin does in our lives. It affects every part of us. It affects everyone that we're close to. And so when Jesus removes it from our lives, it is permanent. Amen. And so God used Isaiah to lay the foundation for this whole concept in chapter 53 when he said, it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us, like sheep, have strayed away. We have left God's path to follow our own, yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. And with Jesus was buried our sins, our sicknesses, our sorrows, our suffering. And just as he claimed in John 6, Jesus offered his very body, his flesh, 
to give us new life. He became the leaven, and only he could remove it permanently. Are you glad Jesus was willing? Because he's the only one who could. Jesus wanted the people that he fed on the hillside that day to know that he would give his life so that they could have eternal life with him. Amen. And as we're approaching our app time, I want to just make this personal application into our lives today. This illustration of the role of leaven in the baking of bread process communicates powerfully to us the power of sin in our lives. This is what God was teaching the Hebrews through this feast as they cleansed their homes with so much required effort. They didn't just clean house. They looked for leaven that was hidden from plain sight. God was having them rehearse this idea of repentance as a necessary step towards him. They were not just to invite him into their lives by applying the blood, but they were also to remove the leaven from their homes. They were in essence actively searching out and removing anything that would remind them of what their lives were like when they were slaves in Egypt. It wasn't enough in God's plan for them to just be spared death God's plan was not completed by him simply passing over their doorstep and into their daily lives. But he continues to explain his desire for their lives through Moses to say, Egypt must continually be removed from your lives. Not just one time, but all the time. God was illustrating the effort and the priority that comes with true repentance. Repentance was never meant to be a box that someone checks so they can say they're saved. It's an ongoing process in our lives. It's a lifestyle, if you will. And every year, God said, I want you to remember how I took you out of slavery. I took you out of sin. You have an option now because of me. I want you to remember that the sin this leaven symbolizes has no place and it still has no authority in your life. And that's what they were rehearsing. That's what they were remembering through that sacred time of unleavened bread. Because here's the truth for us. Here's the application. Sin that is hidden. Sin that is unchecked, sin that is excused, impacts our spiritual lives completely. No matter how small we claim it to be. And this word picture of leaven is so powerful because we understand that even just a little bit of it makes a difference in all of it. And Paul reaches back to this symbol of leaven in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You see, there was a sin issue in the new church in Corinth. And it's quite scandalous. Look into it for yourselves. But Paul calls it out. He is fired up about what the church has allowed to go on since they have come to Christ. And this is what he says about it in verse 6. Your boasting about this is terrible. 
Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads throughout the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. Oh my, somebody's in trouble. Then you will be like a fresh batch of dough made without yeast, which is what you really are. Now listen to this. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for us. So let us celebrate the festival, not with the old bread of wickedness and evil, but with the new bread of sincerity and truth. Paul understood the profound application of this feast that we have studied tonight. For Paul, the meaning was not limited to the Exodus and the Jewish traditions. Paul reiterates here the meaning of it in God's great plan for you and I. Paul says, because Jesus became that feast, he took care of sin for all of time. And we, as a result, are made new, new creatures, a new man. Walk in newness of life. That is a theme that is constant and present in the New Testament because that was the purpose of Jesus' supreme sacrifice. Not so that we could say, I'm sorry, God. Remember what Bishop Dad used to say? Jesus did not die so that you and I could just be apologetic and move on with our lives. But Jesus died to forgive us and so that we could move on and live without the influence and not live as slaves anymore. That's why Jesus died. God doesn't just want us out of Egypt. He wants Egypt out of us. He doesn't just want to forgive us. He wants to make us new. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 puts it this way. Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. He died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's what we believe here in this church. That's the hope that we have, not just for those of us who have been around for a long time, but for any person that God would trust us with and send through those doors, that they don't have to just stop at the Passover and say, okay, God, come into my life, forgive me, help me escape the curse of sin, but they can go on to say, God, continue that work that you started in me in my home. Continue that work that you started in me when I gave myself at an altar to you, God, remove the sin sin and make me new. And so unleavened bread represents life without sin. And just as Jesus became the perfect lamb without blemish, without spot, Peter said, he was also the unleavened bread, the bread of life. He was without sin. And because of that, God's peace, the whole purpose of this season we're studying, the season of the Passover, God's peace comes to us, 
Not just through inviting him in and giving him control in our lives. But God's peace is available to us when we do our best to live our lives in alignment with anything and everything that this book requires of us. And so, it's our app time. And we want to look quickly at the application and the meaning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread in our spiritual lives. So this is not confession time. I'm not asking you to tell each other your hidden sins, as it were, and sweep it out of the corner of your heart. That's not what we're saying at all. But we're just going to take a couple minutes and share maybe some insight, something you feel challenged by personally, as we conclude uh, the lesson tonight. I'll invite you to stand with me, and I'm sorry if I startled you with my boisterous excitement on a Wednesday evening in the middle of the winter, but I'm very passionate about this because I've had conversations with people who have been deceived into thinking that they don't have to leave Egypt. There are people that will teach you that you don't have to, that it's all under the blood and, and you've been washed up and cleaned up, so you just you go your way. No, no, Jesus said, go and sin no more. That's what he wants for us. And so I want us to read in conclusion 1 John chapter 1. This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you that God is light And there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin... We are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Sin is a big deal to God. That's why Jesus had to die. And Jesus became the unleavened Bread, so that sin no longer has power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to it. We are new people. We are his. And that is the message that we must believe. We must understand it correctly. We need to live 
like we believe it. And when you're given the opportunity to tell somebody, don't you be intimidated. At the right time, when the Spirit prompts you to tell them, you've got to leave Egypt. It's part of God's plan because he wants to make you new. It's not so that we feel this constant sense of shame in our lives, but it's meant to give us that sense of opportunity that I can be new. My life can be different. God wants to be a part and revolutionize everything about me and the way that I live. Amen. So let's uh, conclude with prayer together. Jesus, I love you and I thank you for the power of your word. I thank you, God, that we are meant to understand it. And when you begin to reveal yourself to us as it is already printed there for us to see, God, it makes us feel so close to you. It makes us understand better how much you love us. And so, God, I pray that you would continue, that we would allow you to continue to take Egypt out of us. We do not have to live in bondage to anything, not a habit or addiction, not even wrong thinking, God. It is your desire, not just to forgive us and clean us up, but to transform us by the way that we think, the decisions that we make, and the way we understand who you are and what you want for our lives. And so help us, God. Give us personal revelation of this, not just to help us, but so that we can help others be empowered, so that we can direct others to this life-giving truth that we have experienced. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. This podcast was brought to you by the Calvary Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. For more information about the Calvary Church, please visit our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Consider joining us for a service where you will find friendly people, high-energy music, and life-transforming preaching and teaching from a biblical worldview. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or on our website at www.thecalvarychurch.com. Until next time, thanks for listening.